Well, good morning. David, I just had a fit over there a second ago when the choir was singing, so I'm sorry about that. I, I apologize for just coming apart over there. I, I think some, some people need to have a fit a little more often in worship, don't you? I, I wish I could get all of you on a plane, take you over to Africa with me, and let you spend uh, a morning worshiping at the Living Stones Christian Church in, in uh, Abana's Hope, and uh, you'll see what a fit looks like for Jesus. Yeah. I know some of you are capable of having a fit because I've watched you watching football games before. So I know that it's, it's not a matter of whether you can have a fit. It's just what you have a fit about. And I don't know that I could have a fit about anything more important than praising the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So thank you for that. David, thank you for hanging in there today, brother. You, uh, you sound like Froggy off of the Little Rascals, but I've, uh, I've been there. I've preached. Sometimes I've, I've gotten that way where I... I get sick and I can't really do much about it and I'm just going to have to tolerate through it. And I, I, Everybody comes and apologizes, you know, hey man, I'm sorry you feel bad. And I'm thinking, I'm sorry you had to sit through that for the last 30 minutes or so while I had to sound like that. But uh, thank you for hanging in there, David, and leading us to worship this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to open up to 1 Peter chapter 3. We've been in 1 Peter for about eight weeks now, so probably you have a, you have a, a, a leaflet or a, or a worship guide or something already in there, so you ought to be able to turn there pretty quickly. But if you, if you don't have a Bible, then we invite you to take one of the pew Bibles that are in front of you uh, and use that, and you can take that with you if you need to, or if you have somebody in your life that needs a Bible, you can take that with you. Those are our gift to you, but we want you to be able to, to read and, and look at God's Word this morning as we look at 1 Peter chapter 3, and today we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7, where Peter gives instructions to wives and husbands about the way that we as kingdom exiles relate to each other in the most intimate and foundational relationship of all, the God-given institution of marriage. And so today we're going to talk about the public witness of the Christ-centered home. Now maybe you're in here today and you don't have a spouse. Maybe your, your spouse is gone or maybe you're not married yet or, or maybe you were married and not married now and you think, well, uh, there's nothing in me for this text today. No, there is. There's always something in God's Word for all of us. And uh, you may be in a season where you don't have a spouse right now, but that doesn't mean that this doesn't apply to all of us in a very powerful way today. I remember feeling those ways for many years as I was a single man until I was in my late 20s and wondering every single time I heard a sermon on husbands or the home, I thought, well, this doesn't relate to me. But those are foundational truths, and when God brings that about in your life, you're going to want. So let's, let's all pay attention to that this morning. And before we do, we, before we read this text, we need to set the context for the text because a text without a context is a pretext, and we want to be careful about that. And so the text before us today teaches us a vital passage about the role of Christian husbands and wives in the midst of a fallen culture that doesn't share or appreciate the biblical values that the Word of God places on marriage. Peter is giving instructions to husbands and wives at, that are in the church, and the reason for that is because in the first century, as in the 21st century, there are, there are cultural values and expectations within the culture at large that don't really adhere to the, what the Bible says regarding marriage and God's word over the husband and the wife in marriage. And even as we read these verses in just a second, if we're honest, 
we can feel a certain tension as we read them between the instructions that Peter provides and the bombardment of the continual messages that we receive from the culture about what defines marriage, about what gender roles are in marriage, and about the values that shape our marriage relationships. Even when we read this passage, while we fundamentally know what Peter is saying to be true, we can immediately sense... If we were to read this passage in our workplace or if we were to have some, some guest from our neighborhood and we, we decided, I want to just read with you what my, pas- my pastor taught about this week, and we were to share that, we would feel a pushback from the culture because, because what we're going to read is counter-cultural because the nature of Christian marriage is counter-cultural. And so there's a little bit of a tension there that we feel. And too many people, because of that, divorce this passage from the immediate context of the entire letter of 1 Peter, and in doing so, they miss the purpose of what Peter is trying to say. So before we look at the witness of the Christ-centered home, let's remember this letter as a whole, the purpose of it, and, and why we are in this text today. The purpose of Peter's letter was to strengthen his readers and encourage them to live boldly for Jesus Christ in the midst of a culture that was not only steeped in religious idolatry, but a culture that was radically opposed to the message of Jesus Christ as the one true God. As these, as these first century believers throughout the region of Asia Minor were coming to faith in Christ, they were immediately faced with the fact that to believe what the Bible says about Christ, to believe the message of the apostles, meant that Jesus was the one true God, and the implications of that in their life were things that the people around them didn't quite adhere to or respect. And because of that, many Christians in this first century culture were being persecuted verbally and physically. They were being marginalized and ridiculed for their faith in Christ. And so Peter continually reminds us as Christians of the fact that in Christ, we are spiritual citizens of the kingdom of God who live as transient exiles and sojourners in this fallen world. That we are in this world, but this world is not our final destination, and this world is not our real home. And as citizens of that kingdom, we are called to live in this world with an eternal gospel-centered hope throughout the time of our sojourn. One of the ways that we do that is in the Christian's response to the God-given authorities that God has placed in our life and in this world. So beginning in chapter 2, verse 13, we saw what some of these authorities, and we saw the Christians called to submit to government and to law. And we saw the Christians called to submit to those who employ us. When he said, slaves, be submissive to your masters, even those who are unjust. And today he's going to show us another important area of Christian submission And that is the submission of believers in Jesus Christ to follow God's instructions regarding the institution of marriage. And so with that background, let's read this text beginning in 1 Peter 3, verse 1. He says, likewise. That word likewise attaches what he's about to say here with what he's just said previously, starting in chapter 2, verse 13, about submission to authority. In the same vein, likewise, wives... Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some, those are the husbands, do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing that you wear, 
But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now let's think about that passage for a second, because do you feel the tension there as you read it? Can you feel that tension? If you read that out in the general public and you said, the Bible says, wives, be subject to your husbands. Do not let your adorning be external, braiding your hair and putting on gold jewelry and, and the clothing that you wear. That this is how holy women hoped in God by submitting to their husbands. Immediately you can just sense media reaction to that, right? So what is he talking about here? What Peter is talking about here is a message that we see throughout the scriptures when it comes to the Christian institution of marriage, and that is this. That Peter tells us as believers that the beauty and the power of the gospel are often most visibly demonstrated in the arena of the Christian home. The beauty and the power of the gospel are often most visibly demonstrated in the arena of the Christian home, where mutual submission, Christ-like love, and personal honor are to be daily on display. And that when we understand those things, and we as husbands and wives submit to God's plan to be agents of gospel demonstration in our marriages, that that's when the world sees the reality of our message. In your notes it says this, Nowhere can the gospel be more clearly demonstrated than in the relationship between a husband and his wife. Paul basically says this in Ephesians chapter 5 when he's given instructions to women and wives and husbands and he, he immediately shifts from the instructions about women being submissive to their husbands and husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church. And he said, I'm, I'm speaking of Christ and the church. In other words, he's telling us that the one institution, the one place where we have the opportunity to most clearly demonstrate the gospel is in the relationship between a Christian man and a Christian woman who live as husband and wife. I would go so far as to say this. Nowhere is the gospel more clearly validated or possibly polluted than in the visible relationship in the church between Christian husbands and wives. And this is why the New Testament gives us continual instructions in Ephesians chapter 5, in Colossians chapter 3, in 1 Peter chapter 3, about what our role is to be in the Christian home. In other words, what Peter and Paul are trying to tell us is this, that if you are a Christian and you are married, that every single day there are gospel issues at stake in your marriage. Think about that for a second. If you're a Christian and you are married, every single day there are gospel issues at stake in your marriage. Every conversation, every disagreement, every word out of your mouth directed to your spouse, every decision to either serve or to expect service from your spouse is a reflection publicly of your understanding of the gospel. And I would go so far as to say that I believe the lost and fallen world is looking to homes of Christians to see whether the gospel is real 
or not. Nowhere can the gospel be more clearly demonstrated than in the relationship between a Christian husband and a Christian wife. And to understand this, we need to, we need to step back and get a biblical understanding of marriage. And when I'm, whenever I'm doing a wedding, whenever I'm counseling, do premarital counseling for a couple, and whenever, usually if you ever go to a wedding that I attend, you will usually hear me make reference at some point in time in that wedding to the difference between wedding as a covenant and wedding as a contract. Because I think we need to pause for just a moment and reevaluate what our understanding of marriage is. And we need to understand and be clear that marriage is an institution created by God and not a social construct defined by men. Marriage is an institution created by God. It is not a, 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 an invention of mankind to determine a way to put men and women together in a permanent relationship. Marriage is a God-given grace, gift of grace, from my loving heavenly creator that is given to all of humanity to be a place where relational intimacy, personal companionship, and human procreation can all thrive and flourish. And if we're ever going to have the kinds of marriages that God designed, we need to quit looking to the media and pop culture and self-help books, and we need to go start with God's Word and see how God's Word defines marriage. We see in Genesis chapter 2 that God declares that it's not good for man to be alone. In other words, man without an outlet for relational intimacy and personal companionship is not a good thing. And so the Bible says that God says, I will make a helper suitable for him. And then God takes a part of Adam, and from that part, he crafts a woman named Eve who is a helpmate, created with equal value, equal worth, and equal dignity as Adam in God's eyes. Eve is designed very differently than Adam, which is evident in Adam's immediate response when he sees Eve. And he sings this song going, Oh, this is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. Immediately, Adam recognizes this thing's different from me and I like it. All right? There's there's an immediate, instantaneous, visible difference between men and women. But it's more than just physical, it's also emotionally and relationally different. Eve sees the world differently than Adam does. And Eve and all of her daughters are created to be the vessels for human procreation. And as such, they many times have natural maternal and nesting instincts, which we, the sons of Adam, don't tend to have. And then we see in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, God take Adam and God take Eve and institute there the first marriage to covenant, covenant when he declares, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they will become one flesh. God makes a covenant pronouncement that there's something holy and spiritual that happens when a, when a man takes for himself a woman to be his wife such that there's a separation from previous relationships and these two people become one flesh in the sight of God. And for this reason, marriage is a covenant between a man, a woman, and a holy God that that man and woman will live together in the most sacred human relationship and a relationship that will be marked by deep intimacy, but also mutual service and submission. That's what the covenant of marriage 
is to be. But this idea of marriage as a biblical covenant is foreign in our present understanding of marriage in popular culture. Because in today's culture, we treat marriage like a contract, a social contract, between two people who feel deep feelings for one another and want to give it a go and spend their lives together. And as long as we only define marriage as a a mutual contract between two people who feel deep feelings for one another, then who's to say who those two people are to be? It's because of this contractual understanding of marriage that we have such chaos in the homes in our culture today. Because you see, contracts in our culture can be voided by the mutual assent of both parties. You get married, you try it out for a little while, you realize, hey, this person's not all I thought they were, and they realize that about you long before you realize that about them. And then all of a sudden, you just decide, you know what, it's better just to kind of cut and run than to sit here and deal and fight for what God would have us to fight for in marriage. Biblical covenants were not able to be voided by the mutual consent of both parties. As a matter of fact, it was not to be broken except upon the death of one of the parties involved. That's the reason why when we do a wedding and we say our vows, we say at the end of that, what? Until death do us part. That's a covenant. It's not a contract. And it's because God's plan for marriage is covenantal and not contractual that God's instructions on marriage find resistance in a fallen culture that doesn't appreciate biblical values. And this is the context for which Peter gives his instructions to his readers regarding Christian husbands and Christian wives. This is the reason why when we read this, we feel that instantaneous tension between what Peter instructs and how things operate in our world. Because most of us are continually inundated in a world where marriage is nothing more than a social contract between two people. And we don't understand that it's a biblical covenant between a man a woman, and a holy God. And so Peter gives us several instructions here for Christian husbands and Christian wives. We'll start with the wives because that's where he starts. And his instructions basically are this. Wives, be models of Christ-centered submission in the home. Be models of Christ-centered submission. Now, when we first read these instructions to wives, we have to immediately pause because all of us have a natural human aversion to the idea of submission. When Peter says here, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, there's a little bit of a pause there because many of us don't like being told be subject or be submissive to someone else, especially in our culture. And these words, be subject to your husbands, and their application are often the target of ridicule and attack on the church in our culture. Many outside the church see this as an oppressive statement in the Bible. And that Christians who believe this believe in in marital suppression within the home. Our culture hates the idea of submission primarily because our culture misunderstands what biblical submission is really is. You see, the word submission in our culture is often interpreted as the subjugation of one's values or rights. When we say that people in our culture need to submit, 
that there's an instantaneous feel in our culture that submission means subjugation. It means enslavement. It means a taking away of your personal worth or value or dignity and your rights. It's often seen in our culture as demeaning and devaluing the worth of another person. It speaks of enslavement and it speaks of a restriction on natural human freedom and natural human worth. But biblical submission is never presented in the Bible as enslavement. The idea of submission is never presented in God's Word as a form of enslavement or subjugation. It does not entail the picture that authorities give orders and subordinates follow without a word. That's not biblical submission. Biblical submission is much deeper than that. Submission means to arrange one's life under the authority and guidance of another. And we do it each and every day. That's why Paul begins this whole, this whole description of submission with our submission to government authorities. There are, there are laws that we must submit to every single day, whether we like them or not. If I'm going to Huntsville this afternoon, I want to get to Huntsville as quickly as I possibly can. And to do that, I might decide, you know what, I really want to drive 85 to 90 to get there because I'll get there a lot quicker to get to my destination. The problem is, is that the government has designed what is a safe and acceptable speed limit, even though many of you don't observe that, on I-565 to get to Huntsville. And if you go over that speed limit and you are marked by a police officer who's given the authority to carry out that law, you have no excuse. You have to submit to that law. If you don't submit to that law, if you don't willingly arrange your life under the authority of the state highway patrol and under the guidance of those patrol officers, if you don't willingly submit to that, you will have consequences eventually. That's what submission is. doesn't mean you have to like driving the speed limit, but you willingly submit to driving the speed limit. Sam Storm says in his commentary on 1 Peter that submission is a beautiful expression of confidence in God's sovereign disposal of all of life's affairs. That's a great definition. Submission is a beautiful expression of confidence in God's sovereign disposal of all of life's affairs. I'm going to submit because God's placed this authority in my life, whether that authority is the government whether that authority is my workplace or whether that authority is my spouse. And it means that every believer has placed on himself and herself in submission to God and understands that God provides natural structures in our lives that are to be lived out and lived under. Here in this church, we believe in what is a complementarian form of the roles of men and women in the church. And complementarianism means this, that we have an understanding that all men and women are created by God and sovereignly designed by Him. And in such, they are designed with distinct yet complementary temperaments, skills, physical traits, and roles within the home and within the church. That men and women are created different yet complement one another. We are distinctly and purposefully different by our Creator, yet we are divinely complementary when we live the way God has designed us to. And that's what 
Peter's instructions here are coming out of. It's coming out of not an idea that submission is some sort of personal enslavement from a, from a wife to a husband, but it's to willingly place yourself under the authority of God and under the authority of your husband. Which leads to the first really kind of sub-point there, which is when he says be sub- subject to your own husbands, he's basically saying this, respect your husband's God-given responsibility to lead. Respect your husband's God-given responsibility to lead. Be subject to your own husbands is not a commandment to be your husband's personal slave. It doesn't mean you greet him at the door with a kiss and some slippers and you got a hot meal ready for him and you're going to draw a hot bath for him when he gets done and you're going to make sure you attend to all of his needs, right? That's not what he's talking about. It means to respect that your husband has been created by God and charged to be the personal and spiritual leader in your home and that he is responsible to that charge even if he isn't presently acting upon it or living in obedience to it. Let me say that again because there can be some confusion there. To be submissive to your husband's responsibility to lead means to respect that your husband's been created by God and has been charged to be the personal and spiritual leader of your home. And he is responsible to lead in that charge even if he is not presently acting upon it or living in obedience to it. That's why he immediately directs this this idea of being subject to your own husbands was given to all women, but immediately he clarifies that because he talks about how some of those in the church have husbands that do not obey the word. In other words, they're not Christians. They had not come to faith in Christ. They were non-believers. And there was a growing tension in the church because these women had come to faith in Christ and they had adopted a new spiritual identity. And women in the first century Roman culture were expected to adopt the religious practices of their husbands. So if you married a man and he, he came from a different religious practice than you because women in the first century culture didn't really have inherent rights outside of their husband, they were expected to adopt his religious practice. It didn't matter what your, what your family worshipped, you worship what your husband worships. And now here's some ladies that are coming to faith in Christ and they're being told there's only one true God, you can't worship any other. And so immediately they start to turn from their husband's gods to the one true God and there's a tension there. And you can feel it as these women start saying, well, he doesn't worship the one true God so I don't have to submit to his authority. Perhaps some of these Christian women believe that their submission to Christ meant that they no longer had to submit to their husbands who didn't believe in Christ. Peter says, understand that your husband has a God-given responsibility to lead even if he's not presently acting upon that. And he reminds us of something very important for all women and men who find themselves in a human marital relationship where they are presently not equally joined with a spouse who shares their spiritual values. And that truth is that there are more important issues at stake in your marriage than your personal happiness or your being right all the time. There are more important issues at stake. If you presently find yourself as a believer in Christ, married to someone who doesn't share your faith in Christ, who doesn't affirm Christ and the importance of Christ and the church, that does not give you a, 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 a way out or it does not give you an excuse to somehow or another subvert his responsibility in the home. He says here that 
you need to be subject to your husbands, even those who don't obey the word, so that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. It doesn't mean that they can come to faith just simply because they see their wife. It means that a spouse's quiet, loving submission to her husband, even when he doesn't share those biblical values, often is a great picture of the gospel that can lead that person to faith in Christ eventually. And in some cases, the hardest part when you're a spouse who's married to a non-believer, some of the hardest things to understand is that you probably will not be the agency by which that person comes to faith in Christ. Many times it's going to be somebody else in their life that's going to speak the gospel to them. But you want to make sure that when that comes along, that the example they saw from you was one of continual biblical submission to God and to God's purposes in your marriage. Remember, your marriage is to be a picture of the gospel. And the gospel tells us that Jesus Christ pursued us when we were spiritually at odds with him. And therefore, when we find ourselves with spouses who don't share our biblical values, we are pursuing them with the gospel even when they are at odds with us. Now, it does not mean that Christian women should disobey God's word because their husbands tell them to do so. It doesn't mean that they should agree with things in their husbands' lives that contradict the word of God. When he says, be subject to your husbands, it means that they should understand that God knows exactly where you are and that God loves your spouse and desires your spouse to come to saving faith in him just as much or more than you do. And God may use your quiet and beautiful submission as the primary tool by which to make that happen. So the first thing, wives, is to respect your husband's God-given responsibility to lead, even if he or she, even if he is not acting upon that at the time. The second instruction is that women need to pursue the higher beauty found in their identity in Jesus Christ. Pursue the higher beauty found in your identity in Christ. Again, it's easy to misunderstand what Peter is saying here when he gives us these instructions and to understand that what he is giving here is not a biblical prescription, but it's a cultural instruction. It's not a binding commandment. In verse 3, when he says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear. He's not saying that wearing jewelry at home or in church or braiding your hair or certain clothing that you wear is wrong. It's not what he's saying. He's not saying that Christian women shouldn't braid their hair or wear makeup. We have to understand the cultural context in which he's speaking this. And in Roman cultures, it was often common that when women were trying to influence their husbands, they would do so by focusing on external adornments as ways to make themselves more attractive and more desirable by their spouse. And so their thought would be, if I would just focus on these things, he would, he would, he would want me so much that he would want what I have and what I want. And Peter is saying here, do not... We need to basically take that idea of the braiding of hair and jewelry out and just read... Verse 3 and verse 4 this way, Do not let your adorning be external, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. That's what Peter's saying. He's saying, ladies, you need to make the decision to pursue the higher beauty found in your identity in Jesus Christ. He's saying the beauty of Christ inside you as a woman is far more precious, far more attractive, and far more effective than the physical picture that you present to your husband. 
Now, this does not mean that women shouldn't take care of their bodies. It does not mean that they shouldn't put on makeup or wear nice clothes. It means that we should, women should not let their worth and value be defined by the external things. They're to be defined by the internal. And that ladies in Christ, you are precious. In Christ, you are worthy. In Christ, you are valuable. In Christ, you are accepted. In Christ, you are beloved. And let your worth be defined by who you are in Christ, not what your husband or others see on the outside. And then thirdly, ladies, focus on the godly models that God provides us. Focus on the godly models that God provides us. He talks about holy women of old who hoped in God and how they adorned themselves by submitting to their husbands. He reminds these new Christians of godly believers found in Scripture who understood that holiness and internal sanctification are to be more prized than physical attractiveness. He could have pointed to many different biblical role models such as Ruth or Esther or Hannah or Rachel. But he reminds them of Sarah. And he says, remember Sarah who, who called her husband Lord. Now, so as you go home, put that in practice and your husband today says, hey honey, what do you want? I don't know, Lord, whatever you want to do. That's not what he's saying here, okay? Don't want you to go home and say, now you said I got to call my husband Lord all the time. That's not what he's saying. This reference is, is found in Genesis chapter 18, verse 12, where the visitors visited Abraham and told Abraham, a year from now you will have a son, that God has made a promise that he's going to bring an entire race, an entire generation through, through you and through your son. And a year from now you're going to have a son. And Sarah heard that message, but she laughed because she looked at the physical reality of her body and Abraham's body and their age, and she said, oh, yeah, God's going to do that? Yeah, right. And she expressed disbelief in what was going to happen. However, the immediate context of that suggests that after Abraham explained what God said, while Sarah didn't understand it and didn't really believe it could happen, she still submitted to what God had said to Abraham and said, I'll do whatever he says. She's a role model of faith and obedience even when she didn't understand God's plan. And in the same way, women need to focus on godly role models that God has placed both in His Word and in the church. Husbands, let's talk about you. That's easy to say, well, they gave six verses to the wives and only one to the husbands, so husbands get off easy. No, not really. Husbands, you and I are to be models of Christ-centered leadership in the home. He says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. We shouldn't somehow think that God is singling out women as needing more instruction simply because there are six verses to them and only one to husbands. There may only be one verse, but it's a pretty weighty verse. And Paul again uses the word likewise, attaching his instructions to husbands, not only to those of the women, but also to all Christians to be submissive to every human institution, including the home. And this means that we as men know that God has given us the home and the institution of marriage, and we are to be responsible to make sure that it's done God's way. It means that as men, we understand God's authority in the home and that we willingly agree to submit to our role to be the Christ-centered leaders that God has provided in the home. And I think this idea of recapturing a godly understanding of manhood 
and helping men to recommit ourselves to being Christ-centered leaders in our home is one of the most critical areas facing the church today. Because the Christian home is under attack and the primary target of that attack is men. Because Satan knows that if he can get the man in the home to advocate his Christ-centered leadership, he can bring massive destruction to the home and all those who are in it. So he gives us three instructions to us as men. And the first of those is fully commit to knowing the wife that God has given you. He says, live with your wives in an understanding way. Fully commit to knowing the wife that God has given you. This means that we are to work hard to know this woman that God has given us in life. To know what makes her feel emotionally valued. To know what are her personal hopes and dreams. To know her heart. To know how she wants to be loved. As men, we often joke that we just don't understand women, right? And that's true. We don't naturally understand women. And it's because most of the time we're trying to understand women through a filter that is focused on us. And we need to remember that our wife is God's personal gift to us for personal companionship, intimacy, and fulfillment. And in order to know her, you need to take time to communicate with her. And he says also, men, know your wife. Know your wife. In other words, you're to be a one-woman man. You're to be emotionally and sexually faithful and committed to your wife. You have one wife, and no other woman is allowed to know you in the same way that your wife knows you. No other woman is to be the object of your eye. And you are not to seek any sort of companionship in another woman other than the one that God has given you. Fully commit to knowing the wife that God has given you. Number two, honor and strengthen her as a servant leader. Honor and strengthen her as a servant leader. When Peter says, show honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, this is another one of those phrases that gets blown out of context in our culture. And the term weaker vessel is not a statement of a woman's worth or value. It is not a diminishing of her personal or emotional strength. It's not saying that women are naturally weaker than men. No, he is talking about a reference not only to the fact that women are often more physically weaker than men, but often that in the first century, women had significantly less social status than men. And for this reason, it was very easy for women to be taken advantage of. And it's a reminder to us that our wives are given to us as a gift, and our job is to protect and honor them. He's saying honor and strengthen your wife. And you do so by being a servant leader. It means that God has called us as men to be warriors and the protectors of our family. And we are to stand in front of our home and we're to take the arrows that Satan is throwing at our wife. And we do this by committing to being servant leaders in the home. By not coming home and demanding that our spouse serve us, but understanding that we follow the ultimate servant leader, Jesus Christ, who said that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for us. And likewise, men, you are called to give your life in service to this woman that God has provided you. You're to honor and serve her as a servant leader. And thirdly, you're to treat her as a spiritual sister as you lead your home to follow Jesus Christ. You're to treat her as a spiritual sister as you lead your home to follow Christ. 
He says here, show honor to her as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Peter again shows us this principle of complementarianism when he reminds us that men and women are co-heirs spiritually before God. There is a natural leadership structure and responsibility in the home, but men and women have equal value in the sight of God and they are equal spiritually in position in Christ. And therefore, men should treat their wives not only as a valuable physical spouse, but you should treat your wife as a spiritual sister in Jesus Christ. Because you and I share the same grace and salvation with our spouse. We share the same future spiritual inheritance and we are equally united to the same Savior. And he even shows us how the role of men leading spiritually is important when he says that by showing honor to our wives, it has spiritual implications on our prayers. He says, you're to do this, you're to honor them so that your prayers may not be hindered. He reminds us of this, men, that God will not honor our prayers when we refuse to honor his plans, especially in the home. When you're not a a spiritual servant leader in the home, serving your spouse and treating her as a co-heir with Christ, that you ought not to expect that God's going to be honoring you and the things that you ask of Him. And let me say one final thing before we close, and that is this. Men, one of the most intimate things that you can do with your spouse is to lead your spouse in prayer. One of the most intimate things that you can do is to lead your spouse in prayer. And I say that saying as a pastor that probably the hardest thing to do in my life is to pray with my wife. It's one of the hardest things. It's hard to make time to do it. It's hard to make priority. It's hard to to get on the same page. It's It's hard to do. But one of the most intimate things that we do with our spouse is to understand the responsibility that God has given us to be spiritual leaders and to take that woman that God has provided for us and to say, why don't we spend some time praying for God to be glorified in our home, for God to be glorified in our marriage, for the people that God has placed in our lives. Try it out, guys. And if you've never really prayed with your spouse much and you think you're going to sound stupid, you probably will, okay? It's okay. It's okay. You only get better at things by practicing them. So you're probably going to go, uh, uh, I don't know what to say. That's okay. You don't have to have the perfect words. Prayer is not about having the perfect words. Prayer is about having the perfect posture. It's about coming before the Lord with your spouse and being the spiritual leader that God has called you to be in the home. And I promise you guys, if you will commit to praying with your spouse, if you will commit to serving your spouse as a servant leader, it will change your marriage, it will change your home, and it will change the way people see the gospel in our culture. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? We're going we're gonna to close. The time is short. and I want to remind you of this, that God has called us all to be gospel models within the home, but you can never model the gospel if you've never actually trusted in it. You can never model something that's not true of you. And so perhaps in here today, this idea of, of women being subject to your husbands as Christ is subject to the church and men being the spiritual leader of your home, that those things are foreign because you've never trusted in Jesus Christ to begin with. 
In just a moment, we're going to give you an opportunity to respond to that. Maybe today God, through this message, has revealed to you your need for Christ and your need to surrender your heart and life to Him to be the person that God has called you to be. In just a moment, we're going to sing this song. And if today you need to give your heart and life to Christ, then we're going to invite you to come forward and to, to do that. Maybe today you need to come, some of you men, maybe today you need to start praying for your spouse by starting here. And maybe you and your spouse need to come and just commit to praying as, with one another as a couple. Whatever it is God's called you to do, you respond as the Holy Spirit leads. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you have given us the institution of marriage as a beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But all of us in here feel inadequate in trying to figure out how to make that happen. We need the guidance of your spirit. We need the power of your word. We thank you that you haven't left it up to us to figure out, but you've given us very clear instructions in the word. So now, Holy Spirit, we ask you to help us to be the husbands and the wives that you've called us to be so that we can present to the world the beauty and the majesty of the gospel. And for anyone here today, Father, who who needs to trust you as Savior, who needs to recommit their life to being the, the spouse that you've called them to be, God. You speak to our hearts and help us to know what we need to do to obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? Let's sing this song and you respond as the Lord has called you this morning.